Um, Again, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. A couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a woman who was sharing her experience of talking about mental illness to a class of about 15 people. It was a young crowd. And as she typically does with a young crowd, she asks the audience to fill out some feedback on how the talk went and just to get some, some idea and, and kind of turn it back into her. And she does it in part, in part be, to detect if there might be someone who's showing a sign of mental illness or is, who writes down maybe a cry for help that she might be able to discern. And she was sorting through the feedback, uh, which contained faint praise and a few sort of fresh insights. She stumbled upon one in particular that got her attention. It was a question that asked her, do you always use an audience to stroke your own ego? (laughs) Yeah, it was was pretty harsh. And as you can imagine, over the next 24 hours, even though she'd had 14 relatively positive comments, including sort of these uh, fresh insights, new encouragements to what she had shared and the information that helped people, That was all overshadowed. That all faded to black because she was obsessed analyzing this negative feedback. That one negative phrase in the midst of nearly a hundred phrases. And that's life, right? What we tend to do. Maybe you not always so harsh, but how many of you had the experience where you say something largely positive to a person whilst they only hear the negative comment of a person. Why'd you call me a person? Am I not your friend? And you're like, wait a minute, how did this happen? I was sharing something so kind about you. And they don't hear it. And my fear, as we kind of inch through Mark's gospel and we get upon this teaching that Jesus gives here, is that a similar thing is happening, that you may only hear the negative. And it would be understandable, given what my friend Jen here just read from Mark 9, 42 through 50, because there are uh, a lingering impression you may have, maybe of words like sin, stumble, millstone, neck, and sea. Those are all, you probably figured it out, negative words. Uh, cut it off, tear it out, crippled, lame, one eye, worm, unquenchable fire, and finally a favorite, hell. And these warnings are all here, in living color. We're going to get to them this morning. 
However, the reality you may have missed, as I initially did, is that this passage is actually permeated with God's loving grace. God's grace. Even amongst three warnings about hell, two descriptions of the place, not to mention cutting off and tearing out particular pursuits and pleasures that have become to you like part of your body or even an organ, an eye as an organ after all. All of it sounds so unpleasant, but even so, Jesus' teaching begins with grace. It takes a detour because of humanity's use of grace, but it finally ends with grace also. So our roadmap this morning of the message I'll be giving is something like this. Grace from birth, grace abused, and finally we'll look at grace rewards. Grace from birth, grace abused, grace rewards. As we talk about grace from birth, it's a good idea that I define grace for us. I don't want to assume that we understand this Christian word that people often throw out, this religious word called grace, but it's a very important word, arguably the most critical word in understanding what Jesus did for us. Grace is God's love made active through an undeserved gift. My guess is that you've heard about God's love before. Probably plenty of times, probably enough. But God's love isn't just something we absorb by hearing it enough. Nor is this love just theoretical, something we sort of hope to finally experience on the other side. But right now we're sort of grasping for evidence that it's true. Right? Through greeting cards and books we read and Facebook posts from our mom or from a pastor. And the idea is that if we hear it enough, we'll get it through osmosis, right? That's how we'll finally understand God's love. No, that's not what makes Christianity unique. What makes Christianity unique is that God has acted decisively and in humanity's history for love. That's what makes it unique among all world religions. God has acted on love decisively and in our history through Jesus Christ. There was a problem. God got off his throne and did something about it, entering into our history. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? All right, so because God, here's Paul's reasoning here. God has so proved, has so, has so proved that he has acted decisively and historically with love, I can be sure that every good thing around me comes from him. And that he'll continue to bring good things into my life because he has done it tangibly, historically, really in life before, in Jesus Christ. And that's good news, right? His grace continues on. The problem, friends, and you know this is the problem, is we just assume these good gifts around us are of our own making. We deserve them, or they're just because. We have them just because. Everyone has them. That's why Jesus' little brother James says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from him. But we're so easily deceived. We deserve it. We made it. It's here just because. 
In this passage, consider the grace given to us from birth and relayed here by Jesus. It'd be easy to miss. Verse 43, He gives us hands. He gives us hands to work, to create, to reach out, to provide a tender and holy touch to someone who so needs it desperately. To lift up our hands in praise and thanksgiving. The Bible says to lift up holy hands to Him. What a gift. To lose a hand would cause one to become crippled, Jesus says. And this less than the grace with which we were born. Right? Hands gone, less than the grace with which we were born. Less than the fullness of grace. Verse 45, He gives us feet to run to someone in need. To travel to the diversity, to behold the diversity of His beauty in both created thing and creature. To provide for one's family. To flee temptation feet. And what about that verse in Romans 10? How lovely are the feet of the one who brings good news. Of him who brings good news. In other words, he gives us feet to share Jesus' good news with others. All kinds of people to go to them. That is good news. And to lose one's foot would cause one to become, Jesus says, lame. Or less than the grace with which we were born. Verse 47, he gives us eyes to behold the diversity of his beauty, to warn us of both the dangers and to welcome delights. To discern where compassion might need to be extended in a certain situation, he gives us eyes. And so to lose an eye would cause one to become partially blind, Jesus says here in verse 47, or less than the grace with which we were born. See, if you only focus on the negative here, you miss this grace, don't you? We didn't deserve eyes, hands, feet in the first place. Nor do we deserve what Jesus describes in verse 42 and verse 50, that through such grace from birth, God gives us the ability to influence people. You may not think you have any influence on people, but you were born with influence. Now it says here in verse 42, we can cause a difference. And again, it'd be easy to focus on the negative. Verse 42, cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. You get the millstone around the neck. Yes, I agree. But we can first focus on the positive. He gives us the ability to cause in the first place. And that's a great gift, isn't it? It's a similar idea here in verse 50 which can be a confusing verse, and we'll get to more later, that salt is good, but if salt is lost, it's saltiness. How will you make it salt? He again, have salt in yourselves. Why does he bring up salt? Because salt makes a difference, doesn't it? We know that today. You put a little salt on your food that's otherwise bland, it's better, right? Back in those days, you ate the same type of food over and over. Also, you didn't have refrigerators. How'd you keep things from rotting? A bunch of salt, sodium. Boom, boom, boom. That's how you did it. You cured it. Not to mention, when you're going to offer a sacrifice to God, Leviticus 2 says, when you go to the temple, add some salt. Always add salt to any sacrifice you give unto the Lord. Now, how would I summarize this? The intent of what Jesus is saying to his disciples is to have salt in yourselves to have a different sort of taste to your life, a different sort of quality to your life, a different purpose to your life. Not just for dinner, but for worship. 
such that you can exert a different kind of influence upon the world. You see, there's a difference to your life, a different influence upon the world than what it's accustomed to. You're born with that. Hands, feet, eyes, and the ability to influence the world through those gifts. It's grace. And that is good news, right? But, grace, unfortunately, gets abused. The reason why meditating on grace from birth is so important is that Jesus is trying to get his disciples not just to think about their bodily anatomy, but the anatomy of sin. How it sneaks into our lives and begins to harm us and ultimately try to destroy us, to kill us. Jesus wants to say, let's stop for a minute. Look at how sin works. Beware of how it works. Understand that sin is so evil precisely because it uses, it twists, it perverts the very best that God gives us, grace. It takes the very thing God meant to be a gift, to be a blessing to us, and that becomes the main tool for sin and for evil, even to cause others to stumble as well as ourselves. In C.S. Lewis's just wonderful but fictional work called The Screwtape Letters, Uh, These two devils are talking back and forth, one sharing advice with the other of how to tempt this man, how to best tempt him, causing him to stumble, trying to destroy him. And there's this interesting little passage in there where he says, you know, the enemy, meaning God, because he's speaking from the devil point of view, the enemy has an unfair advantage. See, the enemy creates all of these pleasures, all of these good gifts for us to enjoy for us to take pleasure in. But we can't create anything. We're at a disadvantage. All we can do is take his good things and twist them for our purposes. And he's right on. It's the devil's work. And unfortunately, it starts to become humanity's work as well. Taking what is good, what is meant for pleasure, what is meant for our, to please him, and twist it for evil. Consider why Jesus uses the examples of hand, foot, eye, and the influence we can exert with each. It's because all these things are so immediate, right? They're attached to us. They're so immediate to us. They're attached to us. They give us immediate, instant access, not only to what's good and godly, but also to instant, me-centered gratification. I'll grab this. I'll take this. I'll look at this. I'll run to this. A hand. The same hand meant to work, to create things, to extend help to the needy, instead takes for self, hurts someone else, makes gestures to threaten someone, to insult someone, to instill fear in someone. It pushes loved ones away. Right? And it grabs an excess. Foot. Meant to be quick to go to another with good news. Meant to help us flee from temptation. Instead, is used to get you to temptation more instantaneously. Is used to allow gossip to travel faster, right? Get to the person. I want to share this with you. To find pleasures more quickly, be it at the club or just down the street. The eye, the same eye meant to behold the beauty of God is twisted 
so that the sight of something or someone is used to instantly gratify ourselves. The eye is quick to grab lust or even to stir up covetousness, daydreaming about what's not yet yours, but you want it, right? You see how then grace is abused and perverted for evil. For each of these examples, the most common remedy, simply flee to the cross. is what I call the 1 John 1.9 remedy. The most common remedy is the 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, you confess your sins because he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So very simple. You go to the cross, you confess, Jesus, I have used what is good, what you've given me for evil purposes. I'm sorry. I know that through the cross I have forgiveness. and Help me change. Help me repent. That's the simple strategy. But if you keep abusing grace for instant gratification, you'll more likely become enslaved to that gratification. You can't even get to the cross such that the only way to stop is to get rid of the eye, hand, foot. Not literally, but get rid of the instant gratification associated with it. Now, I'll give you an innocuous example here. When uh, my sister and I were young, <clears throat> our mom baked cookies from scratch, and they were primo cookies. I mean, these things, you know, were so good, tender. You had, the, had a little dusting of powder on top when you know it's from scratch. This is good stuff. And the problem was, after the cookie cutter was applied, she had to play both cook and security guard, keeping us away from pre-cooked theft, right? They were on the pan, they're sitting there. My sister and I would just do a little sign, kind of sneak behind the middle island in the kitchen. And the burden was too great for any mom to play security guard and cook. She could no longer do it. So instead, she started to allow us to eat the dough that was still on the egg beaters, right? After it was done, you eat the dough. Kind of lick it off the egg beaters, The idea was that if you ate enough raw cookie dough, it would make you nauseous, sort of abate your hunger long enough for the cookies to actually be cut, cooked, cooled, and finally you can eat them. And that strategy actually worked very well, all right? I got to tell you, it happened. I I, I would lick the dough off the, uh, the egg beater, get nauseous after about a few minutes of eating that, I'd actually have to, to go outside, get some fresh air usually, because i get a little, oh. <laughs> right? And then after a while, the cookies were ready. However, the same could not be said of my older sister. She ate past the beaters into the bowl and still went for those pre-baked cookies, sneaking them. It's never enough. She couldn't stop. Eventually, she would use her allowance. No kidding, she used her allowance toward her gratification. It could be found sitting on the sofa, feeding herself cookie dough from the tube, straight from the tube, as she watched her favorite soaps. as into her teenage years. All right, such you can even go up to her tummy and poke it, and she'd go, whoo-hoo, like that. She was the Pillsbury Dough Girl. She says, okay, she's living a normal life today. All right, it's all right. She gave me permission to share this. But she couldn't stop when I could. For most instant gratifications, the simple strategy of confession, 
receiving forgiveness, repentance, will breathe fresh air necessary for you to get right with God again, for you to get back on the road with him of obedience. But for some, going back to the cookie dough keeps happening. Despite the obvious harm and the consequences to your life, you keep going back to the cookie dough. That's when you know you've gone from sin to what Jesus calls here stumbling block. Jesus doesn't use the normal word for sin in this passage, hamartia, but a very specific word. He uses it four straight times. This word, scandalion, from which we get scandal. And it literally means a stumbling block. You see that in your note, most likely there in the margins. The idea is, Every time you get near it, you stumble over that me-first instant gratification, such that even those around you sometimes fall over toppling. This is also known in the Bible as slavery to sin, a.k.a. addiction. I looked this week at a number of definitions, clinical definitions for addiction, the most common of which was something like this. Addiction is the inability to abstain from something that may cause impairment in behavioral self-control and cravings. This is that again. Inability to abstain from something all right, that might cause impairment in self-control and cravings. Does that sound familiar to anyone here? For honest, probably for a lot of us, if not most, we live in an era that because of globalism, in other words, you have access to everything and technology. You can get to everything quickly around the world. So much is instantly available, right, to our eyes, to our hands. It's probably not hyperbole to suggest that you may or may likely have something from which you, ha- you can't abstain. You keep going back. Now, it could be a bad thing, adultery, pornography, gossip. It could be a morally neutral thing, a TV show, a sport, humor, romance, alcohol, food. You keep going back to these things to fill you, to, make, to satisfy you. It could be a good thing. Charity work, even church work, your spouse, the success of your kids. That's what you keep going back to, to get that rush, to get that fulfillment. You keep going back to the cookie dough. There are various, even biblical approaches to break free from that which keeps causing you to stumble. Prayer, habit replacement, confession, community, support groups, rehabilitation. But my job isn't to play amateur psychologist, is to give you and report on Jesus' one remedy. His one approach, which is to cut it off and tear it out. This might mean leaving your laptop at work. Because you can't bring it home without stumbling at night. It might mean temporarily removing yourself from charity or church work because you find that your life rises and falls based on how others respond to your help, how others change and are affected by your help. It might mean getting rid of cable or changing which package you get because you can't handle a certain station. It might mean deleting a friend's cell phone number because you go to them to talk about your other friend or this other person or what's happening in the world and you know it's gossip. Or getting off Facebook because it produces such envy in your life. Asking your spouse not to have certain food around 
Because you just can't, your hand just keeps going for it. I know a friend, this is very creative, who used to be addicted to partying. And after work, after about 6 p.m., they would give their car keys to a friend in their apartment complex. And their friend then dropped it off at 7 a.m. every morning. So they couldn't go out to the clubs. They just got rid of it. Be creative. Get creative and, and have the humility to ask someone you trust, someone in your community group, help me cut it off and tear it out. There are many reasons to own up to this, to own up to your stumbling block and tear it out. It's corrupting you. It's making you almost less human. You're crowding out the image of God in your life because you keep giving into it, and yet it's never satisfying you. But Jesus mentions just two here. You're hurting those you influence. And the one we'll talk about here specifically, hell. You're on the road to hell. On hell, there's much to report. Jesus emphasizes its pain and duration. Verse 43, he says, Gehenna is the unquenchable fire. Verse 47 and 48, Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The pain of flames and the duration of forever. Down the steep ravine, just southwest of Jerusalem, was a pit called Gehenna. It was an awful place where human sacrifice was once detestably practiced by a couple really evil, evil kings of Judah. Until one good king came along named Josiah, and he commissioned the place to become a garbage dump. He desecrated it by saying, this will be our new trash heap. And it's been used as such six centuries until the time of Jesus. One thing stayed the same 600 plus years. Dump fires didn't go out. We might be familiar with that here. Dump fires didn't go out, and detestable creatures always survived. Now, of an afterlife fit to punish habitual grace abusers, grace perverters, grace twisters, Jesus is saying hell will be like a burning trash dump, forever inflicting the pain of consuming heat and yet never quite consuming its creatures. The pain of heat, unquenchable fire, and yet when you say mercy, just just end me, doesn't quite consume you. The worm does not die. There's a teaching out there made famous actually by the Seventh-day Adventists, Ellen White. And it's perpetuated by some modern Bible teachers, and it's frankly not true. It's called annihilationism. It's the idea that after a period of time, God will relent his, his just punishment, and he mercifully annihilates people's souls. But Jesus didn't know anything of that here, did he? where the worm does not die. Now, you may have heard that Jesus taught more on hell than he did of heaven. And that's true. I read this, this, this good book called uh, The Other Side of the Good News. Larry Dixon here wrote a great book, though. And what he says here in this book, which is right on, is that it's true. Quantitatively, Jesus, if you look at it, taught more on hell than he did on heaven. But he makes a great point that almost certainly this is because There's almost no one who's neutral, who's just kind of in between, who's on the fence with Jesus. 
Friends, we start in sin, the Bible says. David says, I was conceived in sin. We start as what the Bible says is children of wrath. And Jesus here is lovingly letting each person know, first know where they are headed, the road they are headed on. And it's a road towards hell. Now, it's also true, which is interesting, Unlike today's preachers who scare skeptics and scoundrels with fire and brimstone, right? You're a sinner! You're going to hell! To the masses, right? The typical street corner scene. Meanwhile, in the church, those same preachers say, oh, heaven's going to be great. Keep coming to church. Keep giving. Heaven's going to be beautiful. It's a bit stereotypical. But Jesus, interestingly enough, preached heaven to sinners and publicans, people on the street but primarily warned those closest to him, his disciples, about the terrors of hell. Do you see that? Now, that should scare us. That should at least put a lump in our throats. We're here at church. We're most like the twelve. Now, if you have trusted, genuinely trusted Jesus, he has given you new life. He's given you the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, living inside of you. He's given you a heart of flesh to replace a stony heart, a hard heart of stone, all of which should make abusing grace saddening to you, troubling to you, a struggle for you. What the Bible calls godly grief produces godly grief in you. When that's the case, that is good news. Because it means you're on the right road. You're just struggling. You're trying to put sin to death. The problem is, if you continue on the road of taking grace and say, I'm just going to use it for what I want. I want, without tearing it out, or at least humbly seeking help for the addiction, that ought to scare us. That ought to scare you. Where's the Holy Spirit? Where's the fruit of my new life? Why, am, why is my heart getting harder? Here's the point, guys. If, if you spend your life abusing grace to the stumbling of yourself and others, you'll spend your afterlife devoid of grace, stumbling into unending pain. Or to put it differently, here's, here's Jesus' warning in this passage in a nutshell. Keep abusing grace today. Expect none past the grave. And there's no doubt, friends, it's a warning. If you keep abusing grace today, twisting it, perverting it, for instant me-centered gratification, you can expect none past the grave. In your heart of hearts, you and I know God. If God is real, if He is true and He is real and this is true, He will not be mocked. You can't just presume a free pass if you've never trusted His grace to be sufficient for you. I want to plead with you to cease using the hands, the feet, the eyes, every grace, and twisting them for evil use. If you have yet to cut off or tear out even some good grace, you keep going back to it for instant me-centered gratification. I want to just plead with you, cut it off, tear it out, lest there be hell to pay. So Jesus is pleading with his disciples here. It's worth cutting it off. It's worth tearing out that stumbling block in your life that you keep going back to the cookie dough that you know you keep heading towards. 
life eternal, kingdom citizenship, being a son or daughter of the king, influence while we still live in this world is so much more worth it. And in fact, these are the grace rewards. These are the grace rewards to fuel us for potentially excruciating. It's an excruciating life decision, friends. I understand that. It's an excruciating life decision to get rid of an instant go-to gratification that's become to, to us like an appendage or even like an organ to us. To cut it out is painful. Why is that so worth it? Jesus also reminds us here that grace has its rewards. And that is good. Because I front-loaded the message with grace, grace from birth. I need to back-load the message. Grace has its rewards. Is entering life eternal worth even crippling your go-to comfort? Jesus says yes in verse 43. Is kingdom citizenship worth tearing out something that might make you feel, well, Jesus, I'll be lame. I'll be blind without that. I don't know what I'm going to do without that. Yes, it's worth it. Jesus says in verse 45 and verse 47. And he mentions one final reward, the most confusing, admittedly, to understand. I'll summarize it like this. He gives you the reward of kingdom influence through sacrificial hardship. Kingdom influence through sacrificial hardship. If you want to have influence out here, it'll come through sacrificial hardship. In us. Look at these last two verses with me. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Now, we learned earlier about salt. It gives you a difference in life, right? Different taste to your life, different quality, a different purpose, such that you can exert a different kind of influence in the world's accustomed to. They'll look at your life and say, that is different. That is flavorful. That's preserving. That's something not for me, but for, for, as if God existed. It's like Benjamin Franklin used to say of George Whitfield. Benjamin Franklin, who was a deist, didn't believe that Jesus was real and was the Son of God. He said, why do you keep listening to this evangelist George Whitfield? He says, well, I don't believe what he says, but man, he does. He believes it like no one I've ever met. That kind of life. Where people see the difference. How do you gain that sort of difference? The key is verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. It's a weird phrase. I get that. Let me try to summarize it here. Jesus is connecting the two fires in this verse. Everyone experiences on this earth a mini Gehenna. A mini Gehenna. Difference is forged when you are willing to let go of every grace but Jesus in the midst of hardship in the midst of suffering. You're willing to say, Jesus, I'm not going to go to that typical comfort, that typical gratification I go to when things get hard. I'm going to hold on to you alone. Even though those things are good, even though this grace is good, I know I go to it to please myself, to comfort myself, to satisfy myself. I'm just going to hold on to you in this hardship, in this difficulty. In the midst of this mini Gehenna, Jesus is saying, do you, do you have me who is wholly different in yourselves? The real salt. Hold on to me. I am what's different and can make you different. Think about it. When you first reached out to Jesus, what was going on in your life? It was probably a mini Gehenna. 
hardship, difficulty, at the end of your rope, the shallow end of the tank of your life. And you look to Jesus. And you recognize there's something different about him. What keeps your life different, influential, salty? Keep holding on to Jesus in hardship, even if it means cutting something off and tearing something out. Everybody experiences a mini Gehenna. Better to experience a mini one now and cling to Jesus than experiencing the forever one past the grave. Even better to choose it yourself by tearing out and cutting off what makes you stumble. Everyone is salted with fire. It's Jesus' way of saying, guys, I know it hurts. Believe me, I experienced hell on the cross. The real hell. So I know your many Gehenna hurts. It's like giving up a very part of who you are, but it will result in a different flavor of life that can influence the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for every grace that you give us. And there are so many. Thank you for the born with gift of grace you give us. So many things that we're born with, just that are even attached to our bodies that we didn't deserve and through which you can, we can have influence on others and make a difference. Thank you also for born again grace through Jesus Christ. It actually changes from the inside out. Thank you for the reward of life eternal. Thank you for the reward of kingdom citizenship. Thank you for the reward of being able to have influence today. These far outweigh, Lord, the stumbling blocks of our lives. The things we keep going back to for instant gratification but never fill us. For some of us, it's not enough that we confess and receive forgiveness and repent that won't get us free of these things that have become addictions. These stumbling blocks have become part of us and threaten to enslave us if they haven't already. So please, give us the courage to cut them off and tear them out of our lives. Give us the help we need through fellowship. Give us the power of your Spirit to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.